0: So, let's get the creeps underway with The Tomb, an eerie tale from the master of horror Lovecraft, as a man locked in an asylum tells us all about how he came to be there. The Tomb by H.P. Lovecraft In relating the circumstances which have led to my confinement within this refuge for the demented, I am aware that my present position will create a natural doubt of the authenticity of my narrative. It is an unfortunate fact that the bulk of humanity is too limited in its mental vision to weigh, with patience and intelligence, those isolated phenomena seen and felt only by a psychologically sensitive few which lie outside its common experience. Men of a broader intellect know that there is no sharp distinction betwixt the real and the unreal, that all things appear as they do only by virtue of the delicate individual physical and mental media through which we are made conscious of them. But the prosaic materialism of the majority condemns as madness the flashes of supersight which penetrate the common veils of obvious empiricism. My name is Jervis Dudley, and from earliest childhood I have been a dreamer and a visionary. Wealthy beyond the necessity of a commercial life, and temperamentally unfitted for the formal studies and social recreation of my acquaintance, I have dwelt ever in realms apart from the visible world spending my youth and adolescence in ancient and little-known books and in roaming the fields and groves of the region near my ancestral home. I do not think that what I read in these books or saw in these fields and groves was exactly what other boys read and saw there. But of this I must say little, since a detailed speech would but confirm those cruel slanders upon my intellect which I sometimes overhear from the whispers of the stealthy attendants around me. It is sufficient for me to relate events without analyzing causes. I have said that I dwelt apart from the visible world, but I have not said that I dwelt alone. This no human creature may do, for lacking the fellowship of the living, he inevitably draws upon the companionship of things that are not, or are no longer living. Close by my home there lies a singular wooded hollow, and whose twilight deeps I spent most of my time, reading, thinking, and dreaming. Down its moss-covered slopes my first steps of infancy were taken, and around its grotesquely gnarled oak trees my first fancies of boyhood were woven. Well did I come to know the presiding dryads of those trees, and often have I watched their wild dances in the struggling beams of a waning moon but of these things I must not now speak. I will only tell of the lone tomb in the darkest of the hillside thickets, the deserted tomb of the Hides, an old and exalted family whose last direct descendant had been laid within its black recesses many decades before my birth. The vault to which I refer is of ancient granite, weathered and discolored by the mists and dampness of generations, Excavated back into the hillside, the structure is visible only at the entrance. The door, a forbidding slab of stone, hangs upon rusted iron hinges, and is fastened ajar in a queerly sinister way by means of heavy iron chains and padlocks, according to a gruesome fashion of half a century ago. The abode of the race whose scions are here inert had once crowned the declivity which holds the tomb but had long since fallen victim to the flames which sprang up from a stroke of lightning. Of the midnight storm which destroyed this gloomy mansion, the older inhabitants of the region sometimes speak in hushed and uneasy voices, alluding to what they call divine wrath in a manner that in later years vaguely increased the always strong fascination which I had felt for the forest darkened sepulcher. One man only had perished in the fire. When the last of the hides was buried in this place, the sad urnful of ashes had come from a distant land to which the family had repaired when the mansion burned down. No one remains to lay flowers before the granite portal, and few care to brave the depressing shadows which seem to linger strangely about the water-worn stones. I shall never forget the afternoon when I first stumbled upon the half-hidden house of death. It was in midsummer, when the alchemy of nature transmutes the sylvan landscape into one vivid and almost homogeneous mass of green, when the senses are well nigh intoxicated with the surging seas of moist verdure and the subtly indefinable odors of soil and the vegetation. In such surroundings, the mind loses its perspective. Time and space become trivial and unreal and echoes of a forgotten prehistoric past beat insistently upon the enthralled consciousness. All day I had been wandering, thinking thoughts I need not discuss and conversing with things I need not name. In years, a child of ten, I had seen and heard many wonders unknown to the throng, and was oddly aged in certain respects, when upon forcing my way between two savage clumps of briars, I suddenly encountered the entrance of the vault. I had no knowledge of what I had discovered. The dark blocks of granite, the door so curiously ajar, and the funeral carvings above the arch aroused in me no association of mournful or terrible character. Of graves and tombs I knew and imagined much, but had, on account of my peculiar temperament, been kept from all personal contact with churchyards and cemeteries. The strange stone house on the woodland slope was to me only a source of interest and speculation, and its cold, damp interior, into which I vainly peered through the aperture so tantalizingly left, contained for me no hint of death or decay. But in that instant of curiosity... "'was born the madly, unreasoning desire "'which has brought me to this hell of confinement. "'Spurred on by a voice which must have come "'from the hideous soul of the forest, "'I resolved to enter the beckoning gloom, "'in spite of the chains which barred my passage. "'In the waning light of day,' I alternately rattled the rusty impediments with a view of throwing wide the stone door and essayed to squeeze my slight form through the space already provided, but neither plan met with success. At first curious, I was now frantic, and when in the thickening twilight I returned to my home, I had sworn to the hundred gods of the grove that at any cost I would some day force an entrance to the black, chilly depths that seemed calling out to me. The physician, with the iron-grey beard who comes each day to my room, once told a visitor that this decision marked the beginning of a pitiful monomania. But I will leave final judgment to my readers, when they shall have learnt all. The months following my discovery were spent in futile attempts to force the complicated padlock of the vault, and in carefully guarded inquiries regarding the nature and history of the structure. With the traditionally receptive ears of a small boy, I learned much, though an habitual secretiveness caused me to tell no one of my information or of my resolve. It is perhaps worth mentioning that I was not at all surprised or terrified on learning of the nature of the vault. My rather original ideas regarding life and death had caused me to associate the cold clay with a breathing body in a vague fashion and I felt that the great and sinister family of the Burndown Mansion was in some way represented within the stone space I sought to explore. Mumbled tales of the weird rites and godless revels of bygone years in the ancient hall gave to me a new and potent interest in the tomb, before whose door I would sit for hours at a time each day. Once I thrust a candle within the entrance, I could see nothing save a flight of damp stone steps leading downward. The odor of the place repelled yet bewitched me. I felt I had known it before, in a past remote beyond all recollection, beyond even my tenancy of the body I now possess. The year after I first beheld the tomb, I stumbled upon a worm-eaten translation of Plutarch's Lives, in the book-filled attic of my home. Reading The Life of Theseus, I was much impressed by that passage telling of the great stone beneath which the boyish hero was to find his tokens of destiny, whenever he should become old enough to lift its enormous weight. The legend had the effect of dispelling my keenest impatience to enter the vault, for it made me feel that the time was not yet ripe. Later, I told myself, I should grow to a strength and ingenuity which might enable me to unfasten the heavily chained door with ease. But until then, I would do better by conforming to what seemed the will of fate. Accordingly, my watches by the dank portal became less persistent, and much of my time was spent in other, though equally strange, pursuits. I would sometimes rise very quietly in the night, "'stealing out to walk in those churchyards and places of burial "'from which I had been kept by my parents. "'What I did there I may not say, "'for I am not now sure of the reality of certain things. "'But I know that on the day after such a nocturnal ramble "'I would often astonish those about me with my knowledge of topics "'almost forgotten for many generations. "'But the idea of entering the tomb never left my thoughts.' being, indeed, stimulated by the unexpected genealogical discovery that my own maternal ancestry possessed at least a slight link with the supposedly extinct family of the Hides. Last of my paternal race. I was likewise the last of this older and more mysterious line. I began to feel that the tomb was mine, and to look forward with hot eagerness to the time when I might pass within that stone door and down those slimy stone steps in the dark. I now formed the habit of listening very intently at the slightly open portal, choosing my favorite hours of midnight stillness for the odd vigil. By the time I came of age, I had made a small clearing in the thicket before the mold-stained facade of the hillside, allowing the surrounding vegetation to encircle and overhang the space like the walls and roof of a sylvan bower. This bower was my temple, the fastened door my shrine, and here I would lie outstretched on the mossy ground, thinking strange thoughts and dreaming strange dreams. The night of my first revelation was a sultry one. I must have fallen asleep from fatigue, for it was with a distinct sense of awakening that I heard the voices. Of these tones and accents I hesitate to speak. Of their quality, I will not speak. But I may say that they presented certain uncanny differences in vocabulary, pronunciation, and mode of utterance. Every shade of New England dialect, from the unguised syllables of the Puritan colonists, the precise rhetoric of fifty years ago seemed represented, though it was only later that I noticed the fact. At the time, indeed, my attention was distracted from the matter by another phenomenon, a phenomenon so fleeting that I could not take oath upon its reality. I fancied that as I awoke, a light had been hurriedly extinguished within the sepulchre, I do not think I was either astounded or panic-stricken, but I know that I was greatly and permanently changed that night. Upon returning home, I went with much directness to a rotting chest in the attic, wherein I found the key which next day unlocked with ease the barrier I had so long stormed in vain. It was in the soft glow of late afternoon that I first entered the vault, A spell was upon me as I closed the door behind me and descended the dripping steps by the light of my lone candle. I seemed to know the way. And though the candle sputtered with the stifling reek of the place, I felt singularly at home in the musty charnel house air. Looking about me, I beheld many marble slabs bearing coffins or the remains of coffins. Some of these were sealed and intact, but others had nearly vanished, leaving the silver handles and plates isolated amidst certain curious heaps of whitish dust. Upon one plate I had read the name of Sir Geoffrey Hyde, who had come from Sussex in 1640 and died here a few years later in a conspicuous alcove was one fairly well-preserved and untenanted casket, adorned with a single name which brought me both a smile and a shudder. An odd impulse caused me to climb upon the broad slab, extinguish my candle, and lie down within the vacant box. In the gray light of dawn, I staggered from the vault and locked the chain of the door behind me. I was no longer a young man, though but twenty-one winters had chilled my bodily frame. Early rising villagers who observed my homeward progress looked at me strangely, and marveled at the signs of ribald revelry which they saw in one whose life was known to be sober and solitary. I did not appear before my parents till after a long and refreshing sleep. Henceforward I haunted the tomb every night, seeing, hearing, and doing things I must never recall. My speech, always susceptible to environmental influences, was the first thing to succumb to the change, and my suddenly acquired archaism of diction was soon remarked upon. Later, a queer boldness and recklessness came into my demeanor, till I unconsciously grew to possess the bearing of a man of the world despite my lifelong seclusion. My formerly silent tongue waxed voluble with an easy grace of a Chesterfield, or the godless cynicism of Rochester. I displayed a peculiar erudition utterly unlike the fantastic monkish lore over which I had poured in youth and covered the fly-leaves of my books with impromptu epigrams which brought up suggestions of gay, prior, and the sprightliest of the Augustan wits and rhymesters. One morning at breakfast I came close to disaster by declaiming in palpably licorice accents an effusion of eighteenth-century Bacchanalian mirth, a bit of Georgian playfulness never recorded in a book, which ran something like this. Come hither, my lads, with your tankards of ale, and drink to the present before it shall fail. Pile each on your platter a mountain of beef, for tis eating and drinking that brings us relief. So fill up your glass, for life will soon pass. When you're dead, you'll ne'er drink to your king or your lass. Anacreon had a red nose, so they say. But what's a red nose if you're happy and gay?' Gad, split me! I'd rather be red whilst I'm here than white as a lily and dead half a year. So, Betty, my miss, come give me a kiss. In hell there's no innkeeper's daughter like this. About this time I concede my present fear of fire and thunderstorms. Previously indifferent to such things, I now had an unspeakable horror of them and would retire to the innermost recesses of the house whenever the heavens threatened an electrical display. A favorite haunt of mine during the day was the ruined cellar of the mansion that had burned down, and, in fancy, I would picture the structure as it had been in its prime. On one occasion I startled a villager by leading him confidently to a shallow sub-cellar of whose existence I seemed to know, in spite of the fact that it had been unseen, And forgotten for many generations. At last came that which I had long feared. My parents, alarmed at the altered manner and appearance of their only son, commenced to exert over my movements a kindly espionage which threatened to result in disaster. I had told no one of my visits to the tomb, having guarded my secret purpose with religious zeal since childhood but now I was forced to exercise care in threading the mazes of the wooded hollow that I might throw off a possible pursuer. My key to the vault I kept suspended from a cord about my neck, its presence known only to me. One morning, as I emerged from the tomb and fastened the chain of the portal with none too steady hand, I beheld in an adjacent thicket the dreaded face of a watcher, Surely the end was near, for my bower was discovered and the objective of my nocturnal journeys revealed. The man did not accost me, so I hastened home in an effort to overhear what he might report to my careworn father. Imagine my delighted astonishment on hearing the spy inform my parent in a cautious whisper that I had spent the night in the bower outside the tomb, My sleep-filmed eyes fixed on the crevice where the padlock portal stood ajar. By what miracle had the watcher been thus deluded? I was now convinced that a supernatural agency protected me. Made bold by this heaven-sent circumstance, I began to resume perfect openness in going to the vault, confident that no one could witness my entrance. For a week I tasted to the full joys of that charnel conviviality which I must not describe when the thing happened and I was borne away to this accursed abode. I should not have ventured out that night for the taint of thunder was in the clouds. The call of the dead too was different. Instead of the hillside tomb it was the charred cellar on the crest of the slope whose residing demons beckoned to me with unseen fingers. As I emerged from the intervening grove upon the plain before the ruin, I beheld in the misty moonlight a thing I had always vaguely expected. The mansion, agone for a century, once more reared its stately height to the raptured vision every window ablaze with the splendor of many candles. Up the long drive rolled the coaches of the Boston gentry, whilst on foot came a numerous assemblage of powdered exquisites from the neighboring mansions. With this throng I mingled, though I knew I belonged with the hosts rather than with the guests. Inside the hall were music, laughter, and wine on every hand, several faces i recognized though i should have known them better had they been shriveled or eaten away by death and decomposition amidst a wild and reckless throng i was the wildest and most abandoned gay blasphemy poured in torrents from my lips and in shocking sallies i heeded no law of god or nature suddenly a peal of thunder Resonant even above the din of the swinish revelry, claved the very roof and laid a hush of fear upon the boisterous company. Red tongues of flame and searing gusts of heat engulfed the house, and the roisterers, struck with terror and the descent of a calamity, which seemed to transcend the bounds of unguided nature, fled shrieking into the night. I alone remained... "'riveted to my seat by a fear which I had never felt before. "'And then a second horror took possession of my soul. "'Burnt alive to ashes, "'my body dispersed by the four winds, "'I might never lie in the tomb of the Hydes. "'Was not my coffin prepared for me? "'Had I not a right to rest till eternity "'amongst the descendants of Sir Geoffrey Hyde? "'I... I would claim my heritage of death, even though my soul go seeking through the ages for another corporal tenement represented on the vacant slab in the alcove of the vault. Jervis Hyde should never share the sad fate of Palinurus. As the phantom of the burning house faded, I found myself screaming and struggling madly in the arms of two men, one of whom was the spy who had followed me to the tomb. Rain was pouring down in torrents, and upon the southern horizon were flashes of lightning that had so lately passed over our heads. My father, his face lined with sorrow, stood by as I shouted my demands to be laid within the tomb, frequently admonishing my captors to treat me as gently as they could. A blackened circle on the floor of the ruined cellar told of the violent stroke from the heavens, and from this spot a group of curious villagers with lanterns were prying a small box of antique workmanship which the thunderbolt had brought to light. Ceasing my futile and now objectless writhing, I watched the spectators as they viewed the treasure trove and was permitted to share in their discoveries. The box, whose fastenings were broken by the stroke which had unearthed it, contained many papers, and objects of value. But I had eyes for one thing alone. It was the porcelain miniature of a young man in a smartly curled bag wig and bore the initials J.H. The face was such that as I gazed, I might as well have been studying my mirror. On the following day, I was brought to this room with the barred windows, but I have been kept informed of certain things through an aged and simple-minded servitor for whom I bore a fondness in infancy and who, like me, loves the churchyard. What I have dared relate of my experience within the vault has brought me only pitying smiles. My father, who visits me frequently, declares that at no time did I pass the chain portal and swears that the rusted padlock had not been touched for fifty years when he examined it. He even says that all the village knew of my journeys to the tomb, and that I was often watched as I slept in the bower, my half-open eyes fixed on the crevice that leads to the interior. Against these assertions I have no tangible proof to offer, since my key to the padlock was lost in the struggle on that night of horrors. The strange things of the past which I have learned during those nocturnal meetings with the dead he dismisses as the fruits of my lifelong and omnivorous browsing amongst the ancient volumes of the family library. Had it not been for my old servant Hiram, I should have by this time become quite convinced of my madness. But Hiram, loyal to the last, has held faith in me and has done that which impels me to make public at least part of my story. A week ago, he burst open the lock which chains the door of the tomb perpetually ajar and descended with a lantern into the murky depths. On a slab in an alcove, he found an old but empty coffin whose tarnished plates bears the single word. Jervis. In that coffin... And in that vault, they have promised me I shall be buried. That was The Tomb by H.P. Lovecraft, read by Ryan McCluskey, and the producer was Gemma Jenkins. And we'll have more creeps at the same time next week from that other double-initialed master of horror, M.R. James, with The Backward Glance.